Welcome back to Disciple Dojo's study on the lyrics of the Psalms. In this episode, we're looking at Psalm 6. If you're enjoying this series, we would love for you, if you haven't already, to subscribe, click the notifications icon. Just one of the ways you can let YouTube know you appreciate this channel and you want to see us grow. And obviously, if you've missed previous episodes in this series, then check out the playlist here on the channel. We're archiving all of these so that hopefully by the end, we'll have a full walkthrough of all 150 Psalms when this thing is all said and done, whenever that is. So as always, I'm gonna read through the Psalm in its entirety in the NIV, the old NIV version, 1984. So Psalm six, for the director of music with stringed instruments, according to Sheminith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? I'm worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. Now, this is the first of seven traditionally identified penitential psalms. If you want to know what the others are, they are Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Now, there are other psalms that express repentance, penitence, but these seven have traditionally been grouped together as the penitent psalms. Now, some have suggested that this is the fourth psalm in the series that began back in Psalm 3. So 3, 4, 5, and 6 are all written about or around the same period in David's life. All when he was on the run from Absalom and reflecting on that and crying out to God in that. And one of the reasons that people have chosen to group them together, not just because of the content, but because the last time there was a situation that was at the heading at the beginning of a psalm, it was back in Psalm 3, when David fled from Absalom. And then in the next psalm, in Psalm 7, we're going to read about a new situation that that psalm was written for. That may or may not be true. There's nothing essential about reading this psalm in light of the events of David fleeing from Absalom and being on the run and having his throne usurped. But just know some interpreters have read it that way. Now, let's pull up a number of different translations. So as usual, verse 1 in the Hebrew and the Septuagint text are what are translated as verse 0 or the title in many modern Christian English translations. But it begins with Lemnatseach, which we've seen before, to the chief musician or to the director or whoever the Menaseach is. Bin Ginoth al Hashemineth. So literally in or on Naginoth. It's a plural of something, and some have suggested it means stringed instruments, as opposed to the hollowed out wooden instruments like flutes or something like that. And then this phrase, al Hashemineth literally is upon Hashemineth, the eighth. So some have said this whole phrase is referring to a particular instrument, an eight-stringed instrument. Others have said, no, this is just talking about generically to be played on stringed instruments, like a harp or something. And this is a musical notation 
on the eighth, meaning like the octave, or some have even said, no, it's the lower register uh, as opposed to the upper register. So like maybe bass as opposed to soprano or something like that. The truth is there's just no certainty. So take any translations of these with a grain of salt and just know that they're musical annotations. The director, the Netzayak, would have known what to do with these, as would the original audience who sang this song. But there's no real consensus today on what it means. But we do know it's Mizmor le David. So a song of David or a song to David or a song by David or a song for David. And so it begins, Yahweh, do not in your anger, and this word af, it literally means nose, in your, in your nose, but that's an idiom in Hebrew for anger. Nose and anger are the same word. In your anger, tocheheni, so Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, do not, that's what al means, do not, in your anger, ba'afka, tocheheni, rebuke or, or chastise or punish me. And do not in your, and this word chema is literally heat, like hot in your heat. But that's a metaphor. That's a symbol in Hebrew for rage or wrath. Like, like we, in English, we even say burning anger. And so that's what this is in your heat, in your rage. Do not in your rage, theasreni, discipline me, reprove me. Something like that. So you see this in the different translations. L-E-B, O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Or the King James, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. See, King James preserves that heat element of chemath. Or the Tanakh, O Lord, do not punish me in anger. Do not chastise me in fury. And the message, we always look at it because it's fun to see how Eugene Peterson brings it out in modern idiom. He says, please, God, no more yelling, no more trips to the woodshed. So if you're not familiar with English, because we do have international viewers, this is a phrase in English. I'm going to take you to the woodshed. It's it's a colloquial way of saying I'm going to take you out back and discipline you like I'm going to go spank you or punish you. Very colloquial, very idiomatic which is exactly why the message is a paraphrase, not an actual translation. So this is why this is called a psalm of penance or a penitent psalm, because it begins with crying out to God in a heart of repentance, crying out to God because the psalmist is feeling at least that they are being punished. And the thought of being rebuked in anger of facing God's wrath is more terrifying than anything else. Because ultimately, when all is said and done, that's really the only anger, the only wrath that matters. Now, it's hard to bring this out in English, but there's a little bit of almost a rhyme, not quite a rhyme, but almost a rhyme in verse two. And that's going to transition down into verse three. So it says, Adonai al-ba'afka tochicheni. There's the stress you can see right there on the cheni syllable. And then va'al bahemathka tiyasreni. There you can see the stress mark again. So tochicheni, tiyasreni. It, it doesn't quite rhyme, but it's close. The stress, it's, it's assonance. It sounds smooth. And then that begins the word in verse 3, verse 2 in the English, chaneni, show grace to me, be gracious to me, look favorably upon me, Adonai, for umlau, for feeble or weak ani am I. Rafa'eni, there's one more example of this. Rafa'eni, heal me, ya Adonai, ki nivchalu otsamai. So heal me, Lord, Yahweh, because, ki means for, because they are terrified, literally what this means, to be terrified, to be afraid, my bones. 
and my life or my soul, vanashi, this is the word nefesh, means soul or life. Literally, it means throat. Nifala, she is terrified or it is terrified. Ma'od, exceedingly. So my life, my soul is exceedingly terrified. My bones are terrified. My soul is exceedingly terrified. And then it just breaks off in the middle of the sentence, verse 4. But you, Adonai, how long? It doesn't even finish the sentence. Like, I'm terrified. My bones are shaking. My soul is utterly terrified. But you, Lord, how long? This is one of the cries that you see in the Psalms so many times. This phrase, how long? This is something that the psalmist frequently wonder. The prophets wonder it too in the Old Testament. God's people, even in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, when John sees the souls of the martyrs who are under the altar in the very presence of God, Revelation chapter 5, and they are crying out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, before you avenge our bloods on the earth, before you put things right, before you give us justice. How long? This is the cry that's echoed throughout the centuries. And it's something that we should be unafraid to cry out to God. How long? How long is this going to happen? How long am I going to feel this way? How long am I going to be suffering from whatever I'm suffering from? Just this real existential gut cry. And it's not even a complete polished sentence. That's what I love about this. And you, Lord, how long? And so he cries out in verse 5, Shuva Adonai. Literally, turn or return. Either he's saying, turn back from your anger, like relent from your punishment. You know, God talks about, I'm going to bring punishment. But if the people shuv, if the people return, if the people turn from their ways, then God will shuv. God will turn his wrath away. So that could be what the psalmist is crying out. Or he could be crying out, shuv, return to me. Like, return your favor. Return to the relationship that we had. You seem distant. You seem utterly far away. Either way you read this, I think it works. And that might be why it's ambiguous. But he's saying, return or turn, Yahweh. Rescue my soul or my life. There's the word again, nafshi. Hoshieni. Now, this is the Hebrew word, Hoshea, and it's from the verb Yasha, which is where we get the name Yeshua, Jesus. So the author is saying, Hoshieni, save me, Lama'an Chasdeka, because of your Chesed. We've talked about this word here at Disciple Dojo before. This word Chesed, there's no English translation that captures all the nuance of Chesed. Sometimes it's translated mercy, which is how the Septuagint translates it in this case with uh, Eleus, mercy. King James, mercy's sake. The Tanakh, faithfulness. RSV, NRSV, ESV, steadfast love. CSB and Holman CSB, your faithful love. So not on the basis of what the psalmist has earned, what he's predicating his cry for salvation on is God's chesed. Save me because you are a God. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus, Yahweh, Yahweh, abounding in, and he goes on to list these qualities, steadfast love, chesed is one of those things that he shows to the thousands of generations of those who love him. Chesed is at the heart and the core of who God is in the Hebrew Bible. And so the psalmist is pointing that out and saying, God, show me this chesed right now because I really, really need it. And then he goes on the reason, for there is not, ki'en, b'maveth zichrecha, 
There is not in death remembrance of you or memory of you or a memorial to you. In Sheol, Bisheol, who is praising you? So who in the realm of the dead is praising you? Who in the realm of the dead is telling of your great deeds? In other words, the psalmist is saying to God, save me so that I can go on to praise you, so that I can expound your name. Don't take me down to the dead where that's all said and done and, and there's no one praising God in the dead. Now, is this a statement on the metaphysical realities of what life is like in Sheol, in death? Some have read it that way. You know, a number of interpreters, if they're minimalist, they say there's no knowledge of an afterlife in the Old Testament. And some are pretty insistent on that. Others have said, no, no, the Old Testament, they, they didn't have a full-fledged view of what life in the afterlife was like, but they know that that wasn't the end of existence. And they're just saying here that there's no praise, there's no worship, there's no outward expression of thankfulness or telling others about God in the realm of the dead. Because Sheol, the realm of the dead, is where you go to sleep with your ancestors. You go to rest with your fathers. You, you go to, I mean, when Samuel was called up from the grave by the witch at Endor, if you read the book of Samuel, he it says, why have you disturbed me? It's like he was woken up. And so someone said, no, the dead is just where you go and you either sleep or repose or rest, or you basically do nothing until the end final resurrection of the body, Daniel 12, where God raises all the dead and judges. And so that's the idea of the resurrection. Now, all of that would develop in the intertestamental period and especially in the New Testament. But the question is back here in the Old Testament, is there any knowledge or idea that life continued on after death? Of course, Sadducees in the time of Jesus believed it didn't, that this life was it, one and done. The Pharisees, the Essenes, others were like, no, no, God is the God of the living, not the dead, which is what Jesus said. So even though death puts an end to our earthly praise and our earthly walk with God, it doesn't mean that it puts an end to our existence or our ultimate relationship with God. I think this psalm, however you read it, beware of putting too much baggage into a verse from a psalm. Psalms, like we've said before, they're primarily songs. They're primarily emotive prayers to God, not necessarily axiomatic, systematic, philosophical, fleshed out truths about the geography of the afterlife. So whatever position you hold on the Old Testament view of the afterlife, I would suggest hold it with loose hands. This text could be read as saying nobody experiences anything in the grave or in the dead. And, and this just reflects David not having a knowledge of what happens after death. That's possible. But it's also possible that he's just saying nobody's praising you in the dead. Nobody's worshiping you like in the temple, in the tabernacle. Nobody's singing psalms, all those things, because those are tied to this life in this world, praising God, bearing witness to his goodness. And if I die, that's the end of that. And you don't want that, Lord, because your whole goal is to bless all the nations of the earth by your people extolling your name and praising your righteousness and so just be careful how much you read into this. Just like I said, hold it in loose hands. But that's the thought of what's going on in this passage. And then he expresses in verse seven, I am weary in my groaning or in my sighing. This audible but non-intelligible expression of pain. 
whether a groan or a sigh or like moaning. Most of the translations go with groan. RSV has moaning. ESV has moaning. Whatever the psalmist is doing to express their grief, they're worn out from it. And then there's this pretty vivid image, Asche Bachalila Mitati. So literally, I flood all night long my bed or my couch or my mat or the thing I'm laying on. I flood it, drenching my bed in my tears, Bidmati, in my tears or with my tears or by my tears, Arsi, my couch or my, again, my bed, just another word, bed, bedding, mat, whatever you want to call the thing you lay on. These are just two different words for the same thing. They're being used synonymously. Emse, I dissolve. So the image is I am melting away. If you have sugar or something and you pour water in it, it just melts. It just dissolves it. So the different translations, LEB, I flood my bed every night with my tears. I drench my couch or the King James all the night. Make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears to knock every night. I drench my bed. I melt my couch in tears. And Peterson brings it out pretty vividly. My bed has been floating 40 days and nights on the flood of my tears. My mattress is soaked, soggy with tears. So that's the image of what you have is, is the psalmist just pouring out their heart to God every night, all night long. And as a result, they become dark or become dim or even become swollen from vexation, my eyes. My eyes are either growing dim, like I can't see because my eyes are just worn out, or my eyes are swollen because I've been crying so much. And my eyes grow old or my eyes become feeble or my eyes wear out from all or in all or because of all my foes, my sororai, the ones who are opposing me. So not only is the psalmist in agony, but the psalmist is in agony and having to deal with mockers, oppressors, foes, enemies. If this is David during that time when he fled from Absalom, as some have suggested, then this would be those who were mocking and deriding and even throwing rocks at him as he was riding away in shame. Or you could think about Job and his situation where Job is just weeping and pouring out his heart and just utterly despondent. And then his quote, friends come along and they start hurling accusations at him after a while and saying that it's his fault. And so for Job, they have become sorari, my oppressors, my foes, my enemies. And I always like to skim through and, and see what different interpreters, how they've approached these Psalms. And Spurgeon has a great quote about this line in his work on the Psalms. I love this. He says, let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. And he goes down, my God, I will weep when I cannot plead for thou hearest the voice of my weeping. The idea that sometimes we don't even have words to pray. And we've seen that in some of these Psalms already, that there are times when you just, you don't have the vocabulary to express your pain. All you can do is cry out. All you can do is just look to the Lord and just say, how long? All you can do is rage. All you can do is curse the enemy. I mean, you have imprecatory Psalms that do nothing but that sometimes. All you can do, but you're doing all of this to God. These are Israel's hymns in their hymn book. These are Israel's worship songs. 
These are what God gave Israel permission to sing to him in a corporate setting, in a church worship setting. How many times have you experienced the congregation being given words to cry out, to express longing, to express pain, to express hurt? Those are usually like, no, no, when you come to church, you need to be happy. You need to be upbeat. You need to leave your troubles at the door and come on and let's start clapping and shouting. And the Psalms stand as an ongoing rebuke to that notion that no, sometimes you need to come together and express your grief. You need to come together and lament. And Rolf Jacobson from the New International Commentary volume on the Psalms, in talking about lament, he has this great insight. He says, lament is not the absence of faith or an expression of faith being tempted into despair. To lament is to speak precisely from the position of faith, from a position which recognizes that the Lord hears the cries of those who suffer and is not indifferent to them. To lament is to lay claim to God's chesed with the faithful expectation that the Lord will vindicate the lowly. And that's what we see the psalmist doing in Psalm 6. And so as the psalmist has expressed this, even in the face of his foes, then look what happens now in verse 9, verse 8 in English, he then addresses those foes. He addresses his enemies. He addresses those who would gloat or mock or stand over him in judgment. And he says, Suru memeni, turn away from me. All po'ele avain. Now we've seen po'ele avain. This is the same phrase that was used in the last Psalm to describe God hates the workers of iniquity. Those who do iniquity, who do avain. It's the exact same word. And so that's another thing that links this psalm to the one that just came before, to Psalm 5, and that possibly people have said he has in mind the same enemies, the same evildoers, the same persecutors in the previous psalm. But either way, he can now, the psalmist can stand up and say, all of you who do evil, all of you workers of iniquity, sewer is like to go astray or to turn away or to depart. So depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, key for Shama Adonai Kol Bikii, for he heard, or he has heard. You can either translate this as a pluperfect or a perfect. He has heard, Adonai, Yahweh, the voice of my weeping, the sound of my weeping. Kol means sound or voice. And we've seen this before in the Psalms as well. The voice of my crying, that's what God has heard. Shama is not just like here as in sound goes in your ear and you recognize it, but Shama is to listen. It's, this is where the Shema comes from. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. Or listen, Israel. Yahweh your God. Yahweh is one. So Shema is to hear, to listen, to respond in obedience. And he's saying, God has heard my prayer, my weeping, the voice of my weeping, my, as Spurgeon said, my liquid tears. God has heard those. And now he is responding. He has heard Yahweh, Tachinati, my plea, and Adonai, Yahweh, my prayer, Yekach, he has received or he has taken up. So you got three parallel thoughts here that span these two verses. God has heard the voice of my weeping. God has heard my plea. There's the parallel. The voice of the weeping is a plea and God has received or taken up my prayer. So prayer sometimes is nothing more than pleading and weeping. And that is just as a legitimate form of prayer as any other form. 
And so verse 11, a complete turnaround from how the psalm began. Yevoshu, they will be ashamed, v'yibachalu, and they will be, and here's that word, bahal, terrified. The psalmist's bones and his soul were terrified earlier, and he said, my soul is exceedingly terrified. Now look at this, yibachalu, they will be terrified, ma'od, exceedingly. The enemies now, the mockers, the foes, the oppressors, now that God has heard my prayer, they are the ones that will be experiencing what my soul was experiencing when I started this prayer. All my enemies, kol o yevai, yashuvu, they will turn, yevoshu, they will be put to shame, raga, immediately or in a moment. So it ends with this note of triumph over the foes, over the enemies, those who have, if this psalm is part of the psalms that we've been reading so far, who have been oppressing, who have been opposing, who have been attacking, who have been condemning, who have been slandering, all of those that the psalmist have been dealing with in the past few psalms, if that's the situation that this psalm is also reflecting, then all of them are going to turn and be put to shame. And this is a wordplay. You can't really pick this up in English. Yashuvu yeboshu. The difference between these two words is the inverting of these two middle letters. If you switch this letter and this letter, you get this verb. So it's it's a little bit of a wordplay. And uh, Kiel and Delich actually picked up on this in their commentary. And if not intentional, yet how remarkable is the coincidence that shame follows the involuntary reverse of the foes, and that yeboshu in its letters and sound is the reverse of Yeshuvu, what music there is in the Psalter, if composers could but understand it. And so this sounds really abrupt in English translations, this last line, you know, it's just kind of like seems tacked on. They shall turn back. They shall suddenly be ashamed. It's not very poetic. Even King James, let them return and be ashamed suddenly. I mean, it ends suddenly with the word suddenly or in a moment. Peterson, disgraced, they will turn tail and run. And so it's hard to see the aesthetics of the actual Hebrew in English translations, but that's true of all poetry. But just the thing to note is after pouring out his heart all night long, after flooding his bed with his tears, after dissolving his couch in his tears, you have the sense of this long period of suffering. And then when God acts, when the prayer is heard, when vindication happens, it happens suddenly. There's not a long period of vindication. It's in a moment. And just as he had called for God to turn, like return or turn your wrath away from at the beginning of the psalm, you see this at the end, that all his enemies will be turned. This is a passive form of the verb. All his enemies will be turned. And that means, some have said that means they'll either be like turned away, like turn and send them off to destruction or being put to shame, which is what the next word is. Or some have even said, no, this is actually shuv is the, also the word for turn as in repent. This is what the prophets are constantly telling Israel to do. Shuv, turn back to me, repent. And so there's a possible hint, some have said, that the enemies are turned, that the enemies are converted, that they repent, that they turn to the Lord. They turn away from the mocking that they are no longer enemies. And maybe, I mean, that's possible. You know, this is poetry. Again, we don't want to fix it too rigidly. We also don't want to put more on it than it can bear. But others have said no, because the next word is they will be ashamed. And so you wouldn't expect that if this were a positive use of the word shuv to turn. Now, one more thing that's worth noting is Jesus 
alluded to this psalm twice. In his Bible Speaks Today commentary, Michael Wilcock points this out. He says, Jesus himself takes up a phrase from each end of this psalm. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, my heart is troubled. And that's using a very similar phrase to what we find in this psalm in verse 3. And Jesus uses that as he looks towards his death. And then he also uses, away from me, you evildoers. In Matthew 7, 23, and that's echoing verse 8 as he looks towards his return. So in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when people say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And Jesus says, away from me, you workers of iniquity, you evildoers, I never knew you. That is echoing this psalm as well. So we have good reason to believe that Psalm 6 was near and dear to Jesus' heart and on his mind, like all the psalms were throughout his ministry. And then lastly, some have seen a conflict though, because they say, but Jesus told us to love our enemies. So, you know, even if he does allude to this psalm, how does this fit with his message was what he teaches about loving your enemies, praying for those who curse you? Because this psalm at the end calls for the enemies to be ashamed and to be terrified. And and the psalm before this, that we saw this workers of iniquity, it said, God hates those who do that. And his anger burns against them. So how do we reconcile God's anger. And and the psalm begins, this beginning of the psalm is about, Lord, in your anger, do not rebuke me. In your anger, in your heat, in your hot wrath, your fury. So a psalm that begins with God's fury, feeling as if it's directed against the psalmist, or at least the psalmist is praying that it not be, but then elsewhere, God's anger being directed against God's enemies. How does that fit with a New Testament ethic? This is from Rolf Jacobson again in the New International Commentary. I love how he puts this. He says, the concept of the anger of God is the necessary corollary to the love of God. In other words, you can't have one without the other. Without God's anger, God's love is reduced to a sloppy sentimentalism. To be sure, God loves us. But because God also loves our neighbors, when our actions result in the suffering and death of our neighbors, God's love becomes indivisible from God's anger. Like a God who loves people can't help but be angry when horrible evil is done to people and it's done by other people. So God's love and God's anger, by definition, coexist as long as sin and evil are a reality in this world. But, Jacobson goes on to say, but God's anger is in service of God's love. God's anger is not a permanent state, but one that arises from time to time when human violence against other creatures whom also God loves sparks God's anger. God's wrath is neither random nor inexplicable. It arises for specific reasons, which the prophets in particular spell out. And God's wrath is certainly instrumental. That is, God is angry for the sake of the relationship God shares with the world, and for the sake of the wellness of God's creation. And this is a key point when we're thinking about God's wrath, because we do read about it in the Psalms quite a bit. And his wrath being directed against by the psalmist, the evildoers, the workers of iniquity. He's not heaping curses upon people because he just doesn't like them, or even because they were kind of rude to him one day. The image of the evildoers in Psalms is the image of those who are openly, wantonly, unrepentantly, and with a high hand destroying the creatures whom God loves, that are killing, that are oppressing, that are cheating, that are slandering, swindling, 
robbing. You can't help but be angry at. And even in the holy sense of the word, you can't help but hate when people you love are destroyed, are attacked, are abused, are taken advantage of. Righteous anger is a thing. Now, we have a habit of baptizing a lot of our anger, which isn't righteous because we are fallen. And that's why I think it's important that the Psalms, when they do express their anger, they are expressing it directly to God. They're taking it straight to the highest court. They're not taking it in their own hands, but it is being expressed and it is being acknowledged. And just think about when you look at injustice, when you watch the news and you see something that just makes your blood boil. There's a reason for that. There is something that I would say is intrinsically and inherently good about that response to evil. Now, we are not omniscient and we don't always have all of the facts and we don't always have the big picture and can properly express such anger, but God does. And so when God expresses his anger, a lot of times critics and skeptics read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and they're like, oh, this God's so angry. He's always, uh, he's doing this stuff. And And they just implicitly assume that he is also not the omniscient God of all creation, whose very being is the source of anything that we even remotely consider justice to begin with. They just read God as like one of the other pagan gods. Oh, he's just like a human, but on a larger scale, you know, old man, white beard in the clouds. And so they read human emotion into God instead of seeing that all human emotions that are valid are at best echoes or shadows of the real thing. And we have a video here on the channel in our playlist from years ago, Pages from Sages playlist. And it's on this concept of righteous hatred or righteous anger. And we look at a passage from my absolute favorite work of C.S. Lewis's of all time, Paralandra, and what it has to say about these concepts. So I'll link that in the description below. Check it out after you watch this video. But the main thing to keep in mind is God expressing his anger is not like just a big person in the sky expressing their anger. We have to hold the fact that God is categorically and metaphysically in a different class than we are when it comes to expression of anger. And that God is capable in ways that we are not of perfectly expressing anger, wrath, judgment, hatred, all of those things that we as human beings, if we were to express them, they would by definition be muddled with our fallenness and our lack of infinite goodness and our lack of benevolence and our lack of chesed. So keep that in mind. And especially when you hear people starting to rail against the God of the Old Testament, if he were just a creature acting in certain ways, there may be some validity to some of the critiques. But the underlying assumption for the faithful Bible reader, and certainly the one that Jesus held, was, no, this is the only one in all of existence that can perfectly and in total goodness express and act on these type of emotions. We, however, like the psalmist, all we can do is what the psalmist does, which is take them directly to God. We'll wrap it up. I did this in the last Psalm. I won't do this for every Psalm, but for these shorter ones, I'm able to have a little more time. But I wrote out a pretty woodenly literal translation that I think tries to bring out the Hebrew sense in some of these passages and phrases, but also to kind of preserve a little bit of the poetic feel. So we started by reading it in the NIV. Now I'm going to read 
just a translation that I use in my own study. For Matzeah in Niginoth, upon the eighth, a song for David. Yahweh, do not in your anger punish me, and do not in your heat discipline me. Be gracious to me, Yahweh, for feeble am I. Heal me, Yahweh, for my bones are terrified, and my soul is terrified exceedingly. But you, Yahweh, how long? Turn, Yahweh, pull out my soul. Save me because of your chesed, for there's no memory of you in death, or for there's no memorial to you in death. In Sheol, who is praising you? I am weary in my groaning. I flood all night my bed. With my tears, my bedding I dissolve. She grows dark from vexation, my eyes. She grows old from all my adversaries. Depart from me, all doers of iniquity. For Yahweh has heard the voice of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my pleading. Yahweh will accept my prayer. Ashamed and terrified exceedingly, my enemies will be. They will turn away. They will be ashamed in a moment. So that's all for Psalm 6. If you've made it this far in the video, one, I really appreciate that. Two, you may or may not know, Disciple Dojo, this teaching ministry is entirely donor funded. We have a little bit of supplemental income through YouTube, but the bulk of what we do for the past decade has been because people give on a monthly basis. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. Everything we do, whether it's teaching the Bible, whether it's teaching jujitsu and anti-bullying concepts and tactics to refugee and immigrant kids here in Charlotte through our refugee jitsu outreach, or whether it's building online and in-person community for unmarried, for single Christians through our ministry, The Grown-Ups Table. These are all only able to exist because people believe in this ministry enough to support us. So if you appreciate this ministry, especially here now, it's at the end of the year. Giving is just absolutely essential for any nonprofit and Disciple Dojo is no exception. So thank you to each and every one of you. We'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo for Psalm 7. And as always, keep training.